Matt, please be seated. And let me invite you to turn, if you would, to the book of 1 Timothy, where we are in chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, found on page 1178 of your Pew Bible, if you want to use that. It's an easy, a nice bold print to use, uh, 1178, that's 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, you know that we've been studying the office of elder and deacon. Remember, these are the two perpetual, perpetual or ongoing offices we find in Scripture. In other words, the offices of apostle and prophet were, as Paul notes in Ephesians, foundational and temporary. Certain offices ceased after the first generation because they were tied to the laying of the foundations of our New Testament. Now, this doesn't mean, I just want to be clear on this, this doesn't mean that Christians never have a dream or a strong inner compulsion to do something or say something. I'm not trying to remove the supernatural from our lives. After all, our very life is supernatural if we're a Christian. But the office of prophet and apostle involved direct revelation from God that was normative, that is authoritative for the church. The church had to receive it as God's word. That's what has ceased. As Paul notes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, officers in the church today will be judged not by creating new revelation, but based on how they build on the apostolic foundation. Paul tells the Corinthians, quote, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which I laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the pastoral epistles, the letters to Timothy, the two letters to Timothy, and the letter to Titus, there is a strong focus on the role of deacon and elder, not because Paul questions the giftedness of other Christians or because he wants to exalt the officers of the church, but rather because these men are to ensure, they are to ensure that the deposit, the truth, is kept whole and entire, both in faith and in life. Because the apostles were dying, being executed, and the church was exploding in growth, a few select men could no longer govern the complex life of Christ's church. Elders and deacons must be appointed all over the world to meet this need. The pastoral epistles then are, in a very real sense, transitional letters, transitional letters. What does it look like to transition from the apostolic age where the church was upheld by the charismatic gifts of prophecy and tongues to transition from this to a global movement with a completed New Testament scripture? By the end of Paul's life, The foundation was laid, the pieces were in place, but will those pieces hold? That is what these letters are about. 
If I had to give a title for this whole sermon series, I think it would be simply this, hold fast, hold fast. And that is what these offices are about. The elders of the church guard the doctrine, life, and direction of the church. They are to ensure the preservation, pure and entire, of the apostolic deposit. Nothing is to be lost or ignored. The church must be directed by this revelation. But the deacons, the deacons are vital too. They must ensure that with the doctrine, that truth, the love of Christ for the needy is not lost. The church can't just be right. It has to also be good. It can't just be doctrinal. It has to be loving and merciful. Over the past couple weeks, we've noted where these offices come from in our Bibles, the roots of deacons and elders. We've seen uh, that the deacons and elders have deep roots in the Old Testament. And most importantly, we've seen that these offices, deacon and elder, manifest something that is eternally true in God and revealed perfectly to us in Christ. Here, I think, is the most important thing for us to grasp. The offices are but symbols of a greater reality. It is because God is a sublime shepherd that we have the office of elder, as messy and dim as it may be. It is because Jesus, it is because Jesus is a lowly and suffering servant that we have the office of deacon as an image and a symbol of that reality. But if I'm right, if I'm right, and these offices are not just jobs, but holy symbols, who and what kind of man dares to take such an office? And who in the world could we elect to such offices? Well, here comes the answer in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Please stand and let's read God's word. The Holy Spirit speaking through Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or bishop, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience 
And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do look to your word for life, for purpose, for meaning and direction. So we pray now through the Holy Spirit, who is the author of your word, open our hearts to receive it with joy, not simply to think about it, but to receive it with a warm welcome, with great joy and rejoicing to embrace it and to seek to live it in every part of our lives. Father, give this gift to us, for this gift is ours through the mediation of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The very first word, the very first word of verse 2 in the Greek, the original language, is not therefore. I know that's what you have in your ESV, therefore, but that's not the first word. The first word in verse 2 is must. Must. It is necessary. That's how the verse begins. Paul is saying right from the start, this is not optional advice. This is necessary. I also think that provides a helpful perspective on what we have here in this passage. This is a minimum set of requirements that must be met if someone would hold office. This passage is not, is not a full, exhaustive, or detailed list of everything that we might consider. Rather, these are the absolute musts of office in Christ's church. Paul is, of course, aware that many other issues could come into play, and they often do. For example, a man uh, may have life circumstances that keep him from serving. He may be too elderly or have a medical condition. He may need to care for a disabled spouse or child. He may have a job or a calling that is highly demanding and makes formal office impossible for him. We can also think of some other biblical qualifications that come up in other passages of Scripture. These verses, then, are not meant to be exhaustive, but rather, as one commentator put it, this is more of a memo than a full description. In fact, in Greek, the languages it was originally written in, the whole section is even shorter, even fewer words than what you have here in English. And it's very terse. It's very quick. That said, we cannot, we should not downplay what is written here. We would be incredibly foolish to ignore God's word on this important subject. But we should treat this as a snapshot, not a full explanation of everything that might come up when we think about officers. Also, and maybe you grabbed this uh, when we did the reading itself, uh, did you notice that the qualifications for the two offices are almost identical? There is tremendous overlap. 
For example, both deacons and elders are to be careful with alcohol, careful with money, careful with sexual purity. Both are to have life experience before being brought into office, experience in running a home, and experience interacting with others in faithful ways. Yet there are some uh, nuances, some differences, and we'll mention those later, but for the most part, the qualifications are the same. Again, this is because Paul is not giving a full description of everything these officers are going to do and be, but rather a character sketch of what officers should look like. All this confirms that what we have here is more like a starting place, a minimum starting place. Lots of factors will come into play. Many men can even meet these minimums, but for other reasons, reasons that are not even their fault, a host of reasons may not serve in these offices. But the Holy Spirit does not want us to appoint men to office who do not meet these essentials. Later on in this letter, in chapter 5 of this letter, Paul warns Timothy not to lay hands on anyone hastily. Ordination, the laying on of hands, is an incredibly serious matter. So there's a lot to think about, a lot to consider. Many men will never serve simply because God's providence does not allow them to do so or make it possible or maybe because God just never gives them a strong sense of calling. But whoever does serve in church office must at the least meet these standards. With that said, let's jump into the text together. What do these many words mean? What is the significance of all these terms? Normally, my sermons have between two and four points. You guys know this. But today, I want to move more organically through the text, highlighting what these different terms mean. And my prayer is that by the end of the sermon, you'll not just have three or four points, but rather a picture, a sketch, a portrait of a true officer and what he must be. So let's turn to God's word. Follow along with me. And notice with me, please, please the first qualification Paul names. And I'm going to say this is the most important qualification Paul gives. I say that because in the Greek and even in the English, you can see it, above reproach is stated and then all that follows in a sense is an explanation of what Paul says with that one qualification. So look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, which we've identified as an elder, a bishop, it's all used interchangeably, an elder, an overseer, a bishop is to be above reproach. And then later in verse 8 of the deacons, a deacon must be honorable or dignified. If you only remember one qualification from this sermon, let it be this one, above reproach, above reproach. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, the ESV has above reproach. That's the English they chose. But the King James Bible has the word blameless. And both of these are accurate. Both are faithful translations. But they both have issues in English for us. Blameless, which is what the King James chose, can be confusing because no one is truly blameless, right? It sounds to us today too much like the word without sin or, or without guilt. And this kind of misunderstanding could lead churches to set the bar of office so high 
that virtually no one is ever elected. Some church members uh, want their officers to be without any visible defect or weakness of any kind. But that's not the meaning here. And the King James translators, they knew this, but they chose the best word they had available for their time, their version of English. But on the other hand, the ESV's choice here is kind of problematic too, above reproach, because Jesus and the apostles were reproached all the time. They were regularly accused of all things and many things. Elders and deacons are going to be targeted by accusations. That's part of the job. Like Jesus, they may have to bear many reproaches. Maybe that's why the King James Version chose blameless, because the translators wanted to be clear that though accused often, God's servants should be free of actual blame or guilt. The charges should always be false charges, like the ones Jesus endured. Well, good news, though. Paul himself, maybe he realized that this word above reproach could be a little fuzzy for us. And so he spends the rest of this section defining it, defining what he means, everything that follows. We all know, we all know instinctively, I think, that our officers need to be consecrated men, holy men. They aren't perfect, but they should be consecrated. But how can we fill that word out? Let's keep reading. The Holy Spirit next says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. What does that look like? The husband of one wife. Let's start there. And the God repeats this for us in case we're dull of hearing. Verse 12, look over at verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. If an officer is married, he must literally be in Greek. And this is the literal translation, a one woman man. That's what's there. That's the famous literal translation. Many of you have heard it over the years of verse 2. A one woman man. Of course, not all officers, not all officers will be married. Jesus and Paul were not married. Many godly officers through history were not married. I think here of my friend Albert, now with the Lord. Albert's a man I grew up with and was he was one of the finest, maybe the finest church officer I have ever known. He was a confirmed bachelor deacon who was tireless in ministry to all people. He directed and led every aspect of our church's music, from special concerts to weekly playing to choir. He built by hand the stained glass windows in our church. He also had at the very same time, and this is how diversified he was, he was known in the prison system because he ministered to prisoners. And he was known in the nursing home because he constantly entered nursing homes to do Bible studies and to sing and to lead. He also was kind of the unofficial sexton, caring for almost every physical need of our property. No married man, no married man could have done what Albert did. And so this is not, this passage has, is not and has never been understood by the church as a prohibition against single men living in self-control and serving as officers. However, if a married man is to serve, he must be a one-woman man. I think we can draw two big conclusions from this text and from all the rest of Scripture. First, 
a man in office in the church must be married only to one woman woman and no more. That's not a big issue today, but notice that Paul makes this explicit in verse 12. A deacon must be the husband of one wife. Some people in the early church came to Christ already married to more than one woman. Paul does not command them to divorce and abandon their spouse. That would be terrible. But he does see it as a limit on their role. And then as Christianity spread, all the nations, every nation who identified as Christian, quickly outlawed polygamy. Now, heretics such as Joseph Smith, the founder of the cult of Mormonism, attempted to revive polygamy, but Christian marriage laws in the United States ultimately thwarted his efforts. Scanning your Old Testament for a moment, we can see why Paul was so concerned that officers be married only to one woman. For starters, one man and one woman was God's perfect design for marriage. The face-to-face union of two people is God's purpose, his ultimate goal for marriage. Polygamy, more than one wife, works against that design. Notice also that polygamy is an absolute disaster in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has nothing good to say about it. One wife or one child always ends up feeling second class. They did this, having more than one wife, to have more children because of the times. But it ultimately demeaned women and promoted endless conflict. So such a family was not cast out of the early church, but a clear precedent was set that this is not what a renewed man and woman are to be about. But we can't stop there. We must not stop there or limit Paul's command just to polygamy. Being a one-woman man certainly means more than just not having two official wives. The bigger issue, of course, and I'm sure you've sensed this already, is devotion and faithfulness to his wife. Does the man have an undivided love for his wife, even as Jesus has an undivided love for his bride? The pastor, elder, or deacon should be known to have eyes only for his wife if he is married. There shouldn't be any questions about this. This should be, in, in, in my book of church order anyway, this is the first commandment of officers. Remember the first commandment in the Bible, which is God's far more important. But God's first commandment is you shall have no other gods beside me or next to me or alongside me. So officers shall have no other women, no other interests, no rival, no one beside their wife. Here is where I think the sisters in our church can be so incredibly helpful to all of us. I think the sisters of the church have a strong, not infallible, but strong sense of when men are looking and seeking them out inappropriately. And we should listen carefully when a woman in the congregation tells us that an officer is looking and seeking. They know what this looks like. They've wrestled with it since they were teens, if not before. They know the look, the little signs. Now, we don't want to be paranoid. We don't want to be legalistic. But we should demand 
that our officers have strong one-woman-man character, and the sisters of the church should confirm this. The next two qualifications can stay together. Paul writes that these officers, these elders, are to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Sober-minded and self-controlled. Sober-minded here can literally mean sober, not drunk, not involved in substance abuse. Verse 3 makes this even clearer. Not a drunkard, Paul writes. And notice verse 8. Deacons are not to be given to much wine. In view here is the issue of self-control. Of course, being drunk is terrible for your body and the fallout is humility and painful and messy. But more importantly, it interferes with full devotion to God and shows a lack of self-control. It shows spiritual immaturity. Officers and all Christians are to be self-controlled, not substance-controlled. He's not often quoted here, but Pope John Paul II, writing, writing during the 60s and 70s, wrote this, taking drugs, and he's talking about recreational here, obviously not medication that you need, but recreational drug use. He says, it's always illicit, it's always sin, because it involves an unjustified and irrational renunciation of thinking, willing, and acting as free persons. Thinking critically and wisely about what we are saying or doing or feeling is key to the Christian life. Substance abuse cannot be done to God's glory and therefore is sin. John Paul was warning past generations in the 60s and 70s that by indulging in instant drunkness, drunkenness, instant drunkenness through recreational drugs, they were forsaking God's greatest gift, the opportunity to will and act thoughtfully for his glory. To put it another way, drunkenness or anything that controls us like that reduces us from image bearer, acting thoughtfully and doxologically, to something closer to an animal state. So elders and deacons are to be sober at all times. They may enjoy a relaxing glass of wine with a meal, but they are not seeking to escape their life and mind, but rather to leverage their life and mind for God's glory and the good of others. Today, maybe more than ever, Drunkenness takes the form of recreational use of marijuana. Author Stephen Webb writes this, If the problem with drinking is that it can lead to false intimacy, the problem with dope is that it can lead to a false sense of transcendence. All drugs, all drugs involve spiritual cheating. They promise liberation from external pressures by immersing the user in the imminence of sense perception unbound from ordinary restraints. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel, if only for a moment, that the weight of the world can be lightened by levity. Marijuana, however, seduces users with the possibility that foolishness can be secretly serious. Getting high is a parody a sick parody of faith, opening a portal to a false peace that discredits 
rather than exceeds all understanding. Now we could stop here and probably most of us feel pretty good about ourselves. Most of us are probably not given to drunkenness, I hope, or recreational drug use. But Paul adds in verse 2, to sober, he goes on, self-controlled and respectable, which can be translated in good order. Being free from substance abuse is critical, but not sufficient to meet the full requirement of these three terms. An ordered and self-controlled life must mean that an officer, and any Christian really, is not dominated by his or her appetites. In short, he or she must express moderation in all things. So far, Paul's focus has primarily been inward, our character, the character of the officer. He's self-controlled. He's moderate in all things above reproach. He's not open to obvious condemnation. As one commentator put it, he has no obvious black marks on his character, which everyone secretly knows about and no one talks about. Now Paul adds to that sort of inward life, that character sketch, what the officer is to be like towards people, towards others, how he acts, not just who he is in himself. Paul writes at the end of verse 2 that elders are to be hospitable and able to teach. Hospitality can take many forms. The word literally in Greek means love of strangers. In Paul's day, and really through much of human history, inns and hotels were rare And when you did have them, they were notoriously dirty and extremely dangerous. It was a key act, a key function of faith in the early church for Christians to open their homes to each other as they traveled. And officers were to lead the congregation in this grace. Today, I think the issue is more about one's heart, one's attitude and approach to the new person, to the stranger, to the lost. The officers are to be drawn to those who are in any need. That's part of why we do Fellowship 3, so that you just don't have dinner again and again with the same three families that you're already really close to in the church, but that you find that person who's not close to anyone and have dinner with them. For each officer, this may look a little different, and neither Paul nor the scriptures dictate in sort of a detailed way how we meet this qualification, but I think we know it when we see it. It is a love for the new person, the person who's alone, the person without community, the stranger. Alongside this, and again thinking about what the officer does, Paul says elders, as well as being hospitable, are to be able or apt to teach, apt to teach. Now, this is one of the qualifications that is not repeated with the deacons. And this makes sense since teaching was mostly the calling and focus of the office of elder. However, let's be careful because Paul says in verse 9 that deacons, quote, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In Paul's writing, the mystery of the faith, it's not a mystery hidden like a surprise, like God wants to fool us. It is what God has done now at the end of the ages in Christ, what no one expected, that he would be born in a manger, that he would win through losing, that he would go to the cross. That's the mystery. It's not some secret thing we have to invite people into because God doesn't really open it up to everyone. Rather, it is the mystery in the sense that it is the surprise 
that no one saw coming hidden, hidden for ages, but now in these last days revealed. Deacons, along with elders, are to be men of doctrine. They hold fast and understand the mystery of what God has done in Christ. They're to know the scriptures and be capable of explaining them, at least in private. They should have a firm grasp on the mysteries of the faith. And so Paul adds in verse 6, they must not be a new convert, especially speaking of the elders. They must not be a new convert, lest they fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, don't make a man a teacher when he should still be learning and submitting to other teachers. In doing so, you put him in the way of pride, and that was the sin of the devil and of our first parents. When we as a church train deacons, we just did this, uh, they read theology alongside the elder candidates. We don't split up for that. At the very end of training, we do give our deacons a little different set of books to read than our elders about the duties that are involved in their offices. But the year-long theological training is absolutely key for both offices and cannot be skipped. Elders must be, elders must be apt to teach. This may be in private or in public, but they must have that skill and a mastery of the mysteries of the faith. Deacons do not have to be apt to teach, but they must be able to teach. They must have a hold on the doctrines of Scripture. The next several qualifications, or the next qualification really is one that I think can easily be misunderstood. Paul writes in verse 3 now, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. True officers are men who have learned to be gentle and to be strong at the same time. When you're a young man, speaking for myself, I guess here, but when you're a young man, that sounds ridiculous, absolute nonsense. You're either gentle or you're strong. It's one or the other. But as you spend time with Jesus in his word, especially in the gospels, this truth can work its way into your heart. It is possible to be gentle and lowly as Christ was, and also bold and relentless for all that is good and godly. And that was Jesus, wasn't it? Think back with me. He wept over Jerusalem. What was he doing there? He was weeping over the stubborn wickedness and madness of his fellow Jews, his brethren according to the flesh. I can't count the number of times I've wept over this church and members of this church. And I know some might see that as weakness, but then how do you explain what's going on here with Christ? Jesus also picks out the needy and he picks out the rejected, the blind man, the person with leprosy. He's constantly meeting their needs. If, same, if someone came to Jesus and that person was humble, ashamed, repentant, he sent them away with encouragement and new joy. He took the children, remember, the babies in his arms. And the text of scripture, it doesn't come across strong enough in English, but in the Greek, it's so strong. He took them and laying his hands upon them, he blessed them. We fail to appreciate, I think, the power of that moment. The parents, desperate parents, because all parents are desperate, right? Seeking blessing for their kids. 
desperate parents bring to Jesus their children, and in a sheer act of mercy, he lays hands on them and gives them something far greater than infant baptism could ever give them, the direct and unqualified blessing of the Lord of life. But Jesus could also be strong in his gentleness. He condemned the Pharisees. He turned over the money changers' tables. He did predict solemnly the destruction of Jerusalem and the judgment to come. He commanded demons with full authority, the authority of a king. He is full of strength and power. In fact, you might remember that one of the early comments of those who met Jesus, they would say to each other, we never heard anything like this, teaching with authority. Now look, brethren, no elder, no deacon, certainly not me. None of us can live up to that today. But can you see something of that dimly reflected in that man who is your officer? He is undeterred in the face of opposition. He will not be moved. He will not go with the flow. He will not retreat into his house because the situation at church is just too difficult. And yet with everyone, he is gentle and lowly. His own sin is always on his mind. And from that sin, he learns humility and compassion for others. Jesus, the sinless one, teaches him to lower his voice, curb his opinions, and pray, pray, pray. One last qualification for today. Both deacons and elders are to manage their homes well. You see this in verse 4, in verse 5, and in verse 12. So we should note, please note, that this quality occupies the most space in our text. If a man is married and he has a family, he should be showing there in the family that he is gentle and he is wise. Over the years, we as a church have made it a practice to sit with the wives of new elders and deacons before we elect them to ask the wives how they feel about all this. We've done the same in some cases with adult children as well, asking their thoughts. Paul reminds Timothy in the great purpose statement of this letter in chapter 3 that the church is God's house. So how an officer manages his own home provides critical insight to his calling. Now let me give one, I think, very important qualification here. We believe as a church in election. That means that you can be the most faithful father who has ever lived. You cannot guarantee the salvation of your children. Paul does not say here that an elder or deacon, every child, every adult child must come to faith, remain in faith, and ultimately be saved. How could we even know that something like that was going to happen? Rather, that's not the picture. The picture is of order and submission and love. Deacons, deacons are also, we might add, to be tested by what they do in the home, if they can manage well. But also notice in verse 10, there's an additional testing for deacons. Let them also, Paul writes, be tested first then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Paul doesn't elaborate here, so I want to be careful. But what I think we can say, I think we can say, 
is that the office of deacon, unlike the office of elder, can be tested more easily. Tasks of mercy can be given to a man, opportunities of mercy ministry to prove his gifts. To some degree, this can be done with elders as well, but it's much more difficult. Last Sunday night, uh, we had a seminarian, Nathaniel, exhort us in the evening service. In some sense, that is a testing of the office of elder and pastor. But Paul especially emphasizes here the testing of deacons. And with that, the good standing and confidence they enjoy when those gifts are used. I have a special heart, I think, for our deacons because I've met with them now for several years and been the representative of the session with them through many things. And so this is especially a reminder to them, but all of you should listen. Brothers, because visiting the sick, widow and orphan, is what James calls pure religion, a deacon who practices these things will have great confidence and joy. Literally here, Paul says the deacons, verse 13, will acquire a good standing, or literally in Greek, a good seat, a good seat. Because the office of deacon is lowly, an expression of the suffering servant, this promise is especially relevant and especially precious and important for our deacons. In the synagogue and even in probably early church buildings, the elders would often sit around the congregation. And even here, the elders are usually the ones sitting up front. So maybe this is Paul reminding the deacons that in their labors, a good standing is theirs no matter how the room is configured visually. So let not the deacons be deceived. God's rewards are embarrassingly greater than all our efforts. This then is a portrait of the kind of man who should hold office. I know that I've left many things unsaid today. Some might be asking, what about verse 11, the wives? Is the word here wives or is this the office of deaconess, women? Well, you'll have to come back tonight for the question and answer if you want to hear about that. But for this morning, I didn't want to address every detail. I wanted to hand you a portrait, a sketch, and I hope I've done that. But this portrait isn't just the kind of person we should seek for officer. It's the kind of person we should all strive to be by the grace of God. Again, what most of what Paul says here is not overly extraordinary, is it? There are things here every man and woman in the congregation should pray for and seek with their whole heart. I think we can use this portrait, we can all use it, to ask ourselves, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to grow? It's saying that I'm not trying to turn you inward to your own strength. I'm not preaching self-help where you save yourself by your own efforts. No, I'm talking about the kind of testing, the kind of self-evaluation that Paul regularly commands us to do. In just one place, 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 
Paul is not saying that passing the test saves you as if God keeps some kind of grade book in heaven and you get a passing grade. But what he's saying is that we are to soberly look at our lives with biblical self-knowledge, which is endlessly helpful to us. One of the saddest things, one of the saddest things I think is a Christian who thinks they are more mature spiritually than they really are. They think themselves a ways down the road, but all their relationships with their spouse, their children, and others, all their relationships and all their habits say otherwise. On the other hand, nothing is more exciting to me than a struggling Christian who knows that they are struggling. They are reaching out for every help, seeking out wiser Christians, searching the word, praying hard. So let this portrait test you in that way. As for myself and all our officers, we have to say with Paul, after this testing, who is sufficient for these things? In fact, maybe here at the end of our sermon, we've come to the best and I think the most vital qualification of all, a powerful sense of total unworthiness. I'm afraid, I'm scared of any officer who doesn't have that and feel that and live with that. And so may we all together have that abiding and persistent sense that we are unworthy and unfit, that recurring surprise that we are, after all, the children of God despite all our faults. And let us all say right now in our hearts with the Apostle Paul, quote, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So then may the Lord drive out the false officers from the church, establish the weak and faithful ones, and give every Christian here the character described by Paul. On the canvas of our pathetic weakness, may he paint the power of his love. For we are, each of us, what we are only by the grace of God, and that grace cannot remain idle. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have given to us a grace that is powerful through your Holy Spirit, and that grace is restless. It desires our total conformity to Christ, and even now it struggles and fights to bring it about. May we more and more surrender ourselves to it and more and more be remade into his image. And may we look forward to that day when seeing him in his loveliness, seeing him face to face, we will be transformed in an instant into his glory. Make us faithful till that day, we pray, through your relentless grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.